and welcome to another episode of the Vox Podcast, hosted by myself, Alan Scally, together with Saulo Valerio. Hello. It's the podcast that brings you insights and interviews from the world of Vox amps and guitars and the artists that use them. Our special guest for this episode is Yvette Young, one of the most gifted and innovative guitarists of the modern era and a leading force among the new wave of 21st century guitar virtuosos. Join us now as we head to California to talk gear, influences, how she developed her own unique style and discuss her journey so far. Well, I guess we should start at the beginning. What would you say started you out on your musical journey? And maybe you could tell us a bit about your influences and some of the people who inspired you. That's a great question. Um, I So my background is actually in classical music. I started on classical piano and violin and I played in orchestras for a while. It's definitely um, my background is like classical training and all that. But I always was kind of like, I jokingly say a bad classical musician because I, <laughs> in orchestra, I hated playing what everyone else was playing. I'd always want to like put my own twist on like whatever symphony you're playing and that's just like not okay right. in orchestra <laughs> setting. I never really practiced until day before audition. Um, but I mean, I got, I feel like just learning an instrument at a young age. I learned piano when I was four and violin when I was seven. Um, that kind of just informs your brain and primes it to learn other instruments. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't until I was in college that I really started taking guitar seriously and like writing music on guitar. And at the time I was listening to a lot of, um, it was, it was just like therapeutic for me. I viewed it as like a journaling thing. Um, I had a stint in the hospital where I was just using guitar to kind of have it as an outlet and, um, sure. just kind of transform, I guess, uh, how I was feeling at the time. Right. And, uh, I was listening to a lot of bands in high school. Um, I think my focus, I was reflecting on this the other day, what I really loved about the bands was the songwriting aspect of it. So I don't think I ever like idolized any like soloist or anything. I, I was no, actually I, really okay. outside of that world. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't even know. I think I discovered like the three Govin or something when I was like in late in college. So I was late bloomer there. Um, right. And mm -hmm. yeah, I, I kind of just looked up to bands that were a cohesive unit and like created an ambiance or environment um, and had like just really excellent songwriting. I think mm. to this day, that's still what really excites me. So I listened to a lot of like uh, Midwest emo at the time, like bands like American Football, of course. There's uh, a band called Pen Pal that I really liked. A band from Japan called Toe. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Amazing songwriting. Mm. They really function as a unit and they're like super cohesive. And I think they have that perfect balance and then I started getting into more like heavy post-rock stuff like This Will Destroy You and, and Caspian, and this band Envy. Uh, I, then I found Pelican and like the post-metal world. Uh, and I really like that. So I feel like what I do right now, I, don't, I didn't really make a conscious decision to write the music that I write. I think like this project to me, it started out as just for fun. And it still mm. kind of feels like that. I'm like, I'm just kind of trying to combine everything I love about music into one sound. And I'm just like writing for myself and what I want to hear sure. all the time. And just trying to like, 
like for instance, I think lately I've been listening to a lot of like synthwave and like kind of pop and like eighties music. And I've just really liked the danciness of that. So um, for this new record that we're doing, I'm just like, Oh, I'm going to try to like channel some of the components of that, like the, the dance music beat and like the cool. kind of um, the tones found in some of those records, but put it in like my voice. Oh, wow. That's, so that's, that's really, really fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That sort of answers one of the questions that I was thinking, you know, whether you, you had set out to specifically write this type of music from the get-go or whether it was just something that naturally flowed. And, you know, as you say, it just kind of went there from where we felt like doing. You know? Yeah. It's funny because, like, I get a lot of questions, like, how do you approach writing compound meter stuff or odd meter yeah. polyrhythmic things? And one of my questions for you. <laughs> ah, perfect. <laughs> Mind link. Um, I so our writing process is pretty funny. I when I'm when I sit down at the guitar, I'm actually singing all the things that I hear, right. and I think maybe it's just from being exposed to a lot of music when I was younger and like listening to a lot of odd meter things. It just kind of comes out of me, and sometimes I think I'm writing something in four, and because it flows like it's in four, but then I realize it's actually absolutely not. It's yeah. like. <laughs> Maybe I like a bar for it. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm just like, I can't stay away from those odd meters, man. Um, so I, I sing all my songs and I kind of like, as long as the whole piece flows, I have like a basic idea of how, where the accent should be and where the one is and where the downbeats are. Mm. Um, and then I bring it to my drummer and he's the one who attacks on actual numbers to things. Right. So we'll all kind of figure out the phrasing together and he'll actually be like, well, that was actually a bar of five next to a bar of four. And then it yeah. alternates between six and four. Yeah, all that. I don't even think about it until later. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to ask you about is if you thought about things like, I really like that cool riff in 7-4 and then we play a bar 4-4 four, four after it, but you just think of the unit, the sound or melody particularly. It does sound that way to be honest because I think you can kind of tell, can't you, when people think, oh we need that 7-4 mm -hmm. or 9-8 riff in here <laughs> and it kind of sounds like a sound from the beginning to fit that in there. <laughs> yeah, like you're writing it around the theoretical concept That's that you right. want. I've Definitely done that though. There was a song I've only done that once, and it was like I heard this song. It was by this Australian band called Mystery Maps, and it was so cool because they were like, um, it was like one, two, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. So it was like kind of like a additive meter thing. Yeah. And I was like, that's that's so cool. I'm gonna challenge myself to do something like that. So mm. one of our older songs came out because I was like, I want to try to figure out a way to do five, seven, nine, eleven. So <laughs> that is just one time though. Very cool. <laughs> Most of the time it's like, oh oops, I wrote something in 23. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. When you're writing songs, is it something that you ever just do it all and sort of hand them that part? Or is it more of a collaborative thing that you guys write together? Maybe going backwards and forwards. I don't know how close you are to each other or whether you see each other very often. That's a great question. So um, traditionally I've written like probably like the songs 90 to 100% done. Right. And I, I know how I want the structure to be and then we'll play it together. And then sometimes he'll be like, oh wait, I want to do like a different fill here could we repeat it one more time? Right. So we could have, we could like, I could have that opportunity where he'll be like, oh, what if we like cut 
the this measure in half just to shake things up and then like play like this little adjustments like that will work collaboratively on sometimes in terms of bass and stuff um i do have a very specific thing in mind that i want for a certain section just because i'm thinking about all that when i am writing so i'll kind of give him like a loose uh progression or i'll show him like the thing i want like a big example on the last record was uh, I, my bass player usually wants to play like a lead, like a, a kind of like a more melodic, busy thing underneath. Mm. But I'm like, no, this section needs to just be like, dun, 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 <laughs> like, you know, post-metal, like slow, sludgy, like just one note chugged out for a really long time. So little uh, directions like that, I always give out before people spend too much time on their parts. For the last record, we were all away from each other because of quarantine. Yeah. And I um, demoed all of them out, some of them with bass on my computer. And I just put it in a Dropbox and sent it to everyone. Right. It's crazy because I think half of the record happened in like two months before we had the studio time book. So it was just like everyone scrambling to learn this dense music. And <laughs> I was very apologetic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about it earlier when I was talking to Alan and was just saying, uh, I really wouldn't want to turn up to a gig with you totally unprepared and do all this stuff from memory, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that would be a very tough gig. Yeah. There is this one moment, there's this one moment where I went in the studio and my drummer is trying to figure out, like, cause for me, because I've sat with the music for a long time and I don't think of theory when I'm writing it, mm. it is like really obvious and intuitive to me. I'm like, duh, that's a bar of five. Duh. Like this is how you phrase it. Cause I've lived with it. Mm. But then I brought it to practice and I played it and they were like, wait, like, where's like, I don't understand where the one is here. Um, <laughs> And then my drummer actually brought out a notebook and like started like doing literal, <laughs> so like, like it's funny, um, like doing the literal math part of it, like just being like, okay, first bar is five. And then he like had this page of just numbers. Yeah. And then I didn't, I didn't realize it. And I asked like, guys, is this like, is this really actually tricky? Yeah. Or is this, is this, I think I said, is this effed up? <laughs> and then they were like, yes. Yes, it is. And it's funny because I didn't even realize it. I have a friend that does a very similar thing with harmony, though. So he writes these crazy chord changes and very probably very similar to the Steely Dan guys he used to write these chord changes and then put that in front of their session musicians. And the guys would go, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you guys just don't know how brilliant you are. <laughs> I, I think it's just everyone has a different language. And my language is like odd meter. Like to me, that's just, and then for some other people, maybe they grew up listening to like, just like more four, four stuff. So it just hasn't been like internalized mm. yet. So every time I send them a song, I always say, say like subject line, I'm sorry. I said sorry to them like so many times. <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah. And it's funny because my drummer always says like, do you remember when we were sitting together and you're like, guys, don't worry about the new record. It's all, it's mostly in four. And then like <laughs> fast forward to them just being like one, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four, five, six. Like, just like counting it out. <laughs> yeah. I should challenge myself to write something exclusively in four. That'd be great. <laughs> well, that would, that would be an absolute surprise to people, wouldn't it? You should do it. <laughs> I, I think I should. Actually, I always had a dream. In addition to writing this music, I've always wanted to be in kind of like a more shoegazy surf rock 
project. Like, nice, cause yeah. I love a lot of music mm. like that. And I love that. Like, that's where I take a lot of tonal inspiration for. So mm. who knows, maybe that'll, that'll put me in four, four shape. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's no rules, is there? Yeah. No. <laughs> and again, even some of the stuff that was in four, four, I noticed, uh, while I was listening, I was counting. Sorry. I am that sad sometimes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I was. I could tell that even though it was in four four, it didn't sound like it was in four four because of the syncopation. Yeah, that's my <laughs> specialty. Is phrasing it weird, even though it's in four, it feels messed up. Very tricky. Yeah. <laughs> like there is a very marked difference between what people like to label as math rock and other things like post rock or prog or do you think they each have very different vibes i think um i always viewed kind of like the whole umbrella this like progressive music that's right, like yeah. the broader thing and then you get like math rock math core math pop you know uh and then you get some progressive rock gen trying to think metal court, like all of that. Yeah. There's just so many different mm. little things. And I think mm. all of them are borrowing ideas from each other. Mm. Certainly I feel this way with Covet because I actually like love post-rock and I love a lot of like indie shoegaze right. things. So I try to kind of put like the heady aspect of something like Odd Meter and put it in the context of like something like the shoegaze tones and post-rock tones and dynamics. Yeah. And I think what I love about music is its ability to like, transform your mood or like transport you somewhere um and i think mm. a lot of post-rock and um whatever does that yeah very thing it like plays at your heartstrings and it can tell a story so i think that's mm. why i've always been like oh i want to like try to combine this world with this world so i think a lot of bands actually do that they borrow elements from each other there's a lot of like communication going on definitely yeah. um and I feel like this kind of math rock as a genre is just so broad because on one hand you have bands like, you know, Don Cavalera from like the 90s writing these like sledgy, grungy things that are, if anything, more like punk informed, I feel. <laughs> and then you have like a clean, twinkly band, like my UK favorites, um, TTNG. <laughs> um, and they're doing like this kind of more like poppy almost, like indie right. feel to it. And if you were to compare both bands tonally, like they're night and day but mm. they're unified by maybe like the technical aspect. i guess dawn cab is more technical in that it's like the meters are doing the crazy thing and ttng tim is just like playing crazy stuff on the fretboard so mm. um but yeah i guess they're both kind of odd meter at times <laughs> some of the uh, tones that you, you use you know the the single coil guitar going into a, an overdriven vox amp it's very much that kind of nod to the Rindy thing that you mentioned, you know, in certain parts. And it feels Definitely. like that. Yeah. Um, a lot of the the Midwest emo bands I grew up listening to kind of had that tone. I think that's what stuck with me. Like, I love a good single coil. I love pushing an amp to, like, do the breakup yeah. and, like, playing minor seconds for days. I got to stop <laughs> doing that. But it's just so fun. <laughs> Sounds great. I love the way that you managed to get, I think, any AC amp to just be on that cusp of, you know, when you really sort of start to play a little bit heavier, it just breaks up in that really beautiful way, you know, and it just suddenly sounds exciting and, mm. and then you can back away from that. And it's just, it's very, it, it, it's very subtle, but you do that so well, 
you know and I, I wondered what Thanks. kind of uh, how that had kind of evolved and how what you know what settings and things you used is it just the mainly the the way you set the amp up and your volume controls and playing technique it was everything together um so I would say at home when I'm doing like studio recordings I I use this AC10 it's right next to me I love right. this thing I bought it just because my other amp broke and I was like oh like I had an AC15 so I'm just gonna try an AC10 now and it's perfect I feel like it it's just the best tool for me to record at home because I don't have to be too loud to get it to like mm. break up um and I I usually just kind of play with the the gain and like the um Until it feels right what is it the volume and the, mm. the gain knob and I feel like those two knobs actually interact really definitely interestingly do, yeah. yeah yeah so yeah. at home I actually don't need to do anything to get to break up but what helps me in a live setting just take I'm all about control, right? Like I don't like it when I'm in a different room and it just sounds different. So I have like a compressor on my board that it's on pretty much the entire time. It helps right. with kind of blending the more chordy aspects and helping the tapping yeah. just have a little more sustain. Um, and then I have this bright preamp pedal that's kind of like an EQ. And that I feel like I just started using a new one. I used to have, it's from this company called Ground Control. I had their Amaterasu bright preamp and I would just kind of use that to push the amp a little more to like get some of mm. the mids to come out. But now I have the, it's called the noodles, I think. And mm. it's, yeah, it's basically like an EQ and you can customize how much of like the low mids and the highs that you want to push. And I feel right. like that is right. really helpful. Yeah. Um, so yeah, long story short, it's me pushing the tubes, but then using a bright preamp or some kind of EQ to like further push that. And then a the compressor helps make it all sound like smooth. <laughs> The AC10 is totally uh, its own thing in terms of uh, getting that sweet spot of a little bit of drive when you dig in and cleaner sounds when you back off. And uh, that's why it's so popular with people in pretty much every studio. I know this got one. Definitely. I, I recently got the, uh, a treat to play. Um, so the last record we did, he had this AC30 and it was like this old, I want to say it was from like the 60s. Yeah, it's a, it's like a vintage AC30. And for some reason, it sounded like so much different than the AC30 I have. Mm. I don't know. Mm. It just, there was like more detail or something, but it, it was so beautiful and I was like in love with it. But the thing was like, it felt like it was just going to blow up at any time because yeah. <laughs> it was so old. <laughs> yeah. We were like, one more song, we can do one more song and then it's going to like start smoking. <laughs> That's the thing. You used an AC30 S1 as well, didn't you? With the single speaker. Yeah, uh, I play that one. I used I used it yesterday at this festival that I was at. So All right. yeah, that one's old, old, old faithful <laughs> for me live. Yeah, so that that alone would make a big difference between playing that AC thirty with a single speaker and one with two worn out yeah, speakers. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, one of my goals now is to get a vintage AC thirty. I think after recording that one, that's not going to blow up. Right. Just getting back to your piano playing and your sort of early musical growth as a piano player, I'm always interested the way that when you have one instrument when you're learning music and then you move and you gravitate towards another one, how that can benefit you because I'm a really bad piano player. I'm a, I'm a reasonable guitar player. But when I play piano, people say I have this claw technique, which is kind <laughs> of like I'm always... I'm always trying to play guitar on the piano, you know, 
and um it's, funny. I, it's weird but and then my then my piano playing friends sort of say why are you doing that you know and I, I wondered whether there's an equivalent to that when you're a really great piano player and you start learning guitar whether the same sort of thing happens or or not um I'm inept with a pick I feel like that's what has happened is I like I just love using all my fingers to me that feels like the most natural so I do the kind of two-handed tapping thing and a lot of finger style I recently started not using it's just hard for me to like put a pick in my mouth and like like that too because it's like a lot of my stuff is just so detailed I can't do it with a pick um but I recently for some of the more palm muted stuff on the new record I um I use my, I've kind of pinched my nails together and kind of make a pick. Uh, yeah, and then I'm yeah. like getting it to have the attack like a pick yeah, yeah. that way. But that's kind of a new thing I started doing, which I feel like isn't very piano like. But yeah, I think just how I started, the way I think about the fretboard is definitely through the lens of a piano player. Even like having the low strings be like the, your left hand on a piano, the harmonies, and then having right, your higher yeah. strings be like the kind of lead. Yeah melody mm. your right hand on a piano and then being able to switch places and have it be interchangeable i think that's probably the reason why i write polyphonically most of the time is because on piano you're rarely just doing single yeah. line things mm. like you're having to mm. harmonize yourself constantly and i think that's also informed my mm. ear a lot um which has been really helpful sure and does that same thing apply to the whole two-handed technique as well then because that's that seems really logical to me that you'd rather than be constrained where you've you've learned and you your brains developed using both hands then on the guitar why just strum and pick when you can you know use the instrument in the same sort of way is that how that happened yeah definitely I was like because when I started playing I didn't like immediately have a band I was kind of just writing songs on my own yeah and I was like I need to sound as full as possible as one person so yeah I would do yeah. like kind of like more ostinato things with like my left hand and just tap out patterns and then I'd pick over that and like fill in um so then there's like lower strings ringing out while I'm playing like a more lady mm. sort of deal and there's like maybe two voices happening at the same time too yeah. I wasn't like consciously thinking that way I think it was more like that's just what my ear is so used to hearing I had to figure out a way to do it on guitar makes sense and then it's funny because actually playing in a band has caused me to lay back a bit on the layers happening and i'm just <laughs> like well i should leave some room for bass and i could stand to chill out <laughs> <laughs> did the bass player threaten you to go home <laughs> ah, yeah he's always like you're already playing a bass note there like sorry <laughs> you can work around me <laughs> <laughs> i remember playing in a soul and funk band and the the keyboard player kept on going a bit too low on the register you know and the bass player got a bit annoyed so he came and put some tape over the lower octaves of the keyboard <laughs> that's so funny it was oh hilarious yeah they should just like cut two of my strings <laughs> that's funny <laughs> we should probably talk a little bit about tunings mm. you have mentioned in other things we have seen that you use uh facgb tuning i think it is yeah how did that come about and do you experiment match with other tunings and what makes that work so well for you that's a great question. Um, so FACGBE is actually, so I have a signature guitar out and it comes pre-tuned to that, which probably pisses off like a lot of people when they receive <laughs> a guitar. But the reason I did that was because that was the first tuning I actually 
the alternate tuning I actually started exploring and it opened up, that was the tuning that opened up like a whole new world for me. And I got mm. it from that band Toe. Right. Yeah. I had learned their song Two Moons in that tuning. And I started kind of just doing my own thing with it. I was like, wait a minute. So you're telling me that I can tune this to pretty much anything as long as it's not going to like mess with the tension and then I can break the string. So mm. um, I started looking at like American football. I think they have a song that's F-A-C-G-C-E. So I started playing in that. And at one point I went a little crazy and I had like nine, 10 different tunings that I was like having to change to. <laughs> and it was starting to get real annoying at shows because I was just constantly having to tune after a song or I pull up looking like a douchebag with like five guitars. And it's <laughs> like, do I really need five guitars for like five songs? <laughs> like that's a little much. So um, I started kind of downsizing my um, tuning toolkit <laughs> and now <laughs> i feel like the new the new record is basically all in facgce aside from like one song right. and mm. now I, I can just have one guitar the whole time and not have to worry about like tuning all the time <laughs> I wanted to add that a lot of people seem a little bit like averse to alternate tunings and or are afraid of them or think they're limiting. But I actually, um, I teach guitar when I'm not touring and stuff. And I work with a lot of people who um, are stuck in a rut in standard just because they're like, they've memorized every single shape and they just like have their own language mm. already carved out. And what I loved about what alternate tunings did for me personally was like, it took my uh, comfort away from me so I couldn't play the shapes I knew anymore, I had to actually write using my ear yeah. and I had to write using my voice and write intuitively the music that wanted to come out instead of just being like, oh yeah, that yeah. is going to work every time. So um, if you're in a rut and you want to try something kind of crazy, definitely tune, try what, an alternate tuning or something. D-A-D-F sharp A-E, that's another one I yeah. use. Uh, and it can open up like a whole new world of voicings and intervals that like you naturally just wouldn't go to. Mm, that's great advice. Is there anything else that you'd say to beginners and, you know, young guitarists just trying to find their own sort of voice? Anything else that uh, you'd recommend? Great question. I would say study as many different genres of music as possible and don't feel like just because you're trying to be a certain genre or whatever that you're limited to a certain type of gear or a certain type of like style I would say there's really mm. like other I mean there's some exceptions like in jazz or like certain styles of guitar but like there shouldn't really be any rules as to what's kosher and what's not I think what really helped me find a sound that I love was just really trying to combine everything I loved about different genres like the tones of Mizus Emo, the emotional mm. um, nature of post-rock music and classical music, how I can tell a story, the odd meter of prog, all of that. I kind of just like squished it all together and I wasn't trying to be anyone else. That's like, I guess another thing is like yeah. don't model your whole career after like someone else's gear, someone else's like traje life trajectory because everyone's different. Some people mm. are honestly at the right place at the right time and you're never going to be as good as being someone else's that person. So you might as well yes. try yeah. to, you know, learn as much as you can and play what actually excites you and kind of just let that guide where you're going to go. I, I think that's fantastic advice. And um, the whole idea of looking ahead at what you could be 
and dis- not disregarding what other people have done, but just looking at, at what you're really into and just finding your own pathway is, yeah. is so is such a, a, a solid way to look forward. Yeah. yeah. And forming your own opinions too. I would say that like with gear, I feel like some people just completely discount something because it's like, Oh, no one ever uses that for that thing or that, that pedal sucks. It's so cheap or whatever. But yeah. then you never know. Like I've had so much studio magic happen using like really <laughs> like uh, unkosher things. And it's just, that's what I like. That's what my ear thinks is really cool. Hmm. And who knows it could end up working out. So just cause someone you look up to tells you something's not good. You don't have to listen to them. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the history of music making is, is littered with these kind of things, Very right. Nice. You know, there's, yeah. there's been, a, there's been a lot of, pro- a lot of electronic products, which were uh, almost, you know, being put in the scrap bin and they were used by a lot of people in the, you know, the, the nine, 80s and 90s to make fantastic dance records. Yeah. And the gear was the gear was totally unfashionable, but they just used things in a different way. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I love that. I love I love the way that you can sort of just reinvent gear and, and do things differently. Yeah. Isn't it crazy that sometimes a product flops just because they're marketing to the wrong demographic? I see that a lot. Yeah. I'm just like, wait a minute. Like these people don't understand that like this thing could actually open up this whole other world. And I think these people from this other group would definitely use it in that context, but it's just like not yeah. knowing who your audience is. Exactly. So go out and explore. Yeah. You never know what you'll find. <laughs> I think I've read that you really love birds and uh, you're obviously <laughs> yes. into into different types of art. And uh, do you feel like that those kind of things come across in your music as well? Um, I, I do say that my, a lot of what I write is very visually informed. Like, for instance, when I sit down, a lot of my songs are inspired actually by tones. Right. And like I view different tones as kind of like a color palette. Right. Again, it's like my visual arts background is going to inform how I think about everything. So for me, it's like when I write a melody, it's kind of like a black and white drawing and I'm kind of setting a scene or whatever and then I get the opportunity to color in parts of that drawing with like different effects like fuzz and chorus and delay or whatever and it's just the end outcome to me is like a finished piece of art that makes you feel a certain way or transports Mm -hmm. you to a place so yeah I would say absolutely yeah that's Mm -hmm. a great way to think about that that's really nice gonna say sometimes when I'm feeling uninspired like changing up my tone is a big way Mm. to kind of stimulate that creativity like for instance when I'm just playing direct into an amp I tend to just like play really noty verbose things that like I just (laughs) you know have a certain style that associate that I think it's because my ear is trained to associate that tone with like a certain kind of music but um when I plug into like a fuzz or something I just start writing more like aggressive, tormented sounding things. <laughs> and it's just really interesting because I didn't change. All that changed was like what I'm hearing. Um, and I guess I'll say that if you don't have like a good baseline tone, sometimes it can really uh, inhibit you creatively Definitely. because you're not, you don't feel like confident on the instrument. It's not speaking to you. So I would say don't, if, if anyone's starting out playing, don't under, don't underestimate how important it is to like have a good baseline clean tone that you're like really happy with mm. so yeah don't yeah. wait uh, don't skimp on spending time trying to dial that in <laughs> so do you typically set up 
the Vox amp on the clean side of things and get your distortion primarily from pedals? Or do you ever set the amp to get the distortion from it? I would say I get it from the amp and then I use pedals to push it even more. Right. So like I like it on the cusp because I play fingerstyle yeah. and I have pretty dynamic pickups. So I depend a lot on digging in to like really push the amp, but then I can really amplify that by playing through some gain or slapping on that EQ pedal that I have. Uh, right. Yeah. And I feel like it really helps it kind of like accentuate some of that, mm. some of the broken upness. Other than the preamp, and fast pedals that you've already mentioned. Do you feel there are some other pedals that work really well with the Vox amps that you've been using? I love how the Carbon Copy by MXR, I have a Carbon Copy Deluxe, that one has a tap tempo. Oh yeah, that's right. Um, I just love how that sounds with my amp and it sounds even cooler when you push it through gain because some of the repeats are, um, I'm trying to think whether I have all my gain stuff in front of it or behind it. I want to say probably be for it i'm probably gonna say the wrong thing but <laughs> anyway yeah I, I feel like it really like accentuates the repeats and kind of um another thing i do is i actually overpower the um carbon copy so that it, i think mm. it like makes the repeats even more pronounced um right, yeah. and it just sounds beautiful amp i use a lot of chorus on a lot of my songs and i think i have juliana that's the stereo version of the julia by walrus audio the chorus and I always love how that sounds mm. through the AC30 as well, especially the AC10 actually. Yeah, it sounds great. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been a real pleasure, Yvette. Really, really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. Thank you for these awesome questions. I love talking about the whole creative process and all that. So I appreciate your guys' time as well. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. See you. Take care. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you to Yvette Young and thanks to you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the interview. Remember to check out the latest news and new gear at voxamps.co.uk and we'll see you next time. (laughs) 